Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Philip Munoz. I'm the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science uh, and a professor, uh, concurrent professor at the Notre Dame Law School. Uh, and it's my pri pri privilege to welcome you uh, to our Constitutional Studies uh, event. Uh, here at Notre Dame, I direct our program in Constitutional Studies. Uh, the semester here at Notre Dame is about to start. So for the students, especially the Notre Dame students uh, watching, uh, if you're interested in the Constitutional Studies uh, minor, please uh, email me or when you're back on campus, come talk to me or uh, Soren Greffenstadt. Um, uh, you can find information about the minor and the program at constudies.nd.edu. Uh, a few announcements uh, and thank yous before we start. Uh, my first thank you is to uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. They are co-sponsoring uh, uh, today's event. Uh, ISI is uh, an organization, a private organization uh, that advances education and te teaching and research on the principles of American constitutionalism and ordered Liberty. So we thank ISI uh, for their co-sponsorship. Uh, I also want to thank uh, my class. Uh, this uh, event today is part of uh, a class I'm teaching, uh, an intercession class on conservatism after Trump. So this is actually our last class meeting. We've been uh, having conversation uh, with uh, conservative scholars and activists uh, and amongst ourselves all month. Uh, trying to think through what is conservatism now uh, in the post-Trump era. Um, so I want to thank all the 16 members of the class uh, for sharing their class time uh, with the Notre Dame community and indeed the, the larger public. So thank you very much uh, to everyone in the class. Uh, as a special thank you uh, to those students, I will remind you that your papers are due uh, very soon. So get those papers uh, done for me and turn them in. Uh, one announcement, uh, next Wednesday, so a week from tomorrow, um, classes start here at Notre Dame and we'll have our first event of the spring semester. Uh, it's a panel on the second Trump impeachment. And we, we have three all-stars who'll be joining us via Zoom. Um, uh, John Yu, a former Justice Department official and uh, UC Berkeley law professor. Uh, Jeff Toulis, a uh, distinguished presidency scholar at the University of Texas. And Benjamin Kleinerman, uh, who holds an endowed chair at Baylor University, uh, are joining us for a discussion of uh, the second Trump impeachment, uh, both its constitutionality and its political prudence uh, and what it means for uh, immediate politics and the future of American democracy. So please come back and join us uh, next Wednesday, February 3rd at 12.45 uh, p.m. East Coast time uh, for what should be a very, very good conversation. Okay, we have a tradition here in the program, in the Constitutional Studies program, we let our students introduce our speakers. So I'm going to call on uh, August Desch, uh, who's a Con Studies minor, a senior, if memory uh, serves me right. And uh, he will introduce uh, our two speakers. Our, our format will be, we'll let each uh, presenter uh, speak for uh, approximately 10 or 15 minutes. And then we'll have some conversation uh, among the class members and then we'll open it up to Q&A to, to everyone who's watching. Okay, well, uh, August, can you introduce our speakers? Uh, yeah, thank you all so much for uh, joining. We have two very distinguished uh, figures with us today. First up, we have uh, Sohrab Amari. 
who is currently the op-ed editor of the New York Post, a contributing editor of the Catholic Herald, a columnist for First Things. Previously, he served as a columnist and editor for the Wall Street Journal opinion pages in New York and London, and is a senior writer in commentary. Uh, and with us also, we have Yuval Levin, who is the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He also holds the Beth R Ravenel Curry Chair in Public Policy, the founding and current editor of National Affairs. He is also a senior editor of the New Atlantis and a contributing editor to National Review. Join me in, in welcoming our panel today on the topic of conservatism after Trump. Sir, so go ahead. Well, thank you for that um, introduction and thank you to uh, the Constitutional Studies Program, my friend um, Professor Munoz uh, and ISI for sponsoring this event. I wish I could join you all in person. I dearly miss that feeling of giving talks on campuses and shaking hands with students, um, but all of that uh, will have to be deferred and we use this Gnostic substitute of Zoom to, to um, connect. Um, so I, to be honest, I don't know how I got pegged as the future of conservatism uh, genre guy. Uh, it's mostly of my own doing, I know, but nevertheless, it's not something that I set out to do in a conscious way. Um, it seems to me that speaking about a kind of conservative agenda going forward that's stippled by bullet points of we do this, we do that, it seems so inadequate to the state of crisis that our nation finds itself in, both political parties in some ways find themselves in. Um, and so I hope to sketch something broad for you um, and step away, I think, a little bit from the fray. But again, it's a future of conservatism, conservatism event, so I have to talk a little bit about the horse race aspect of where things are going. Um, and um, I also just want to very quickly acknowledge um, Yuval, who's, uh, you know, a, a been a friend and interlocutor of mine. And, you know, back when I was a kind of just straightforward, classical neoliberal slash neoconservative, it was Yuval who was thinking about how to make conservatism more friendly to workers and families, along with a cohort of other writers. And so in a way, I'm merely just catching up to to him, and I look forward to our discussion. Um, but I will read to you because I've, writ I've written a piece uh, 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 attempting to put all my thoughts down, but I will tell you that this was written before the disgusting events of January 6th. Um, and so, uh, but I think fundamentally the trends that I'm about to outline for you will not be altered. Um, if anything, they will be accelerated by the January 6th disaster. Um, so uh, just looking back at the election of, uh, of, of November, I think it revealed uh, many extraordinary things about the state of our nation and our institutions in the year 2020 slash 2021. Among them, the haplessness of pollsters, the unanimity, almost unanimity of, of uh, uh, elites uh, in the need to stop the rollicking populist uprising that was launched on both sides of the Atlantic in the year 2016, and the sinister power of big tech to censor what we read and, and to shape what we think. Um, obviously, I speak 
on that point, as, a, as an editor at the New York Post, um, we, as you know, we had our reporting on the uh, Hunter Biden laptop files uh, censored by both Twitter and Facebook. Um, and uh, we had our Twitter account suspended on spurious charges that we had posted hacked material. We were called purveyors of Russian disinformation by 50 former intelligence officials. And then after the election, um, and to this day, no one has disputed the authenticity of the emails. So that was an extraordinary phenomenon that continues um, and I think will be a big factor in conservatism, but let me move on. Uh, we, I, I'm happy to address the Hunter Biden files uh, as, a, as a discrete question later. But what we above all learned, I think, from the 2020 vote was that the class realignment of the political parties is accelerating, if not complete. The GOP now broadly represents a multiracial working class coalition while Democrats have emerged as the party of upscale suburbs of Silicon Valley and big tech and Hollywood, broadly speaking of the owners of finance capital and the highly educated technocrats who serve as capital. Now I know that um, there are plenty of wealthy people who voted for Trump as well, but I'm trying to think of what is the dynamic class energy behind every party. And I think that's accurate. The division becomes still clearer when we examine which Americans donated to which of the two candidates. As Bloomberg recently reported, Trumper, Trump, Trump garnered the financial backing um, it, to a large extent of people who toil for a living, roofers, landscapers, motorcycle repairmen, car parts dealers, most quote unquote essential workers with the exception of nurses. On the other hand, with few exceptions, Democrats overwhelmingly drew donations from those who generally serve, spend their days moving information on screens. The latter group, you can call it the laptop class the coined by my fr friend uh, Adrian Vermeule, is unquestionably ascendant in our society. Even before the COVID-19 lockdowns, an ever-growing share of economic activity was taking place remotely, virtually, or otherwise without the need for human toil. COVID-19 accelerated the shift. The laptop class worked in pajamas and demanded more lockdowns while members of the tangible class swelled the unemployment lines, especially in the service industries, retail hospitality. In this very stark sense, Democrats represent the winners in the new post-pandemic order, while Republicans represent the quote-unquote losers. Then there was the shattering of a racial mythos long propagated by an elite that prefers its minority voters to be pliant and predictable. Far from becoming a regional rump party with a narrow electoral appeal to racially disaffected whites, as the pundit class had warned for four years, the Trump GOP was able to significantly expand its appeal to minority communities, especially Latinos and young African-American men. As one Columbia University sociologist pointed out, moreover, this expansion was, quote, decisive in several of the larger states that Trump picked up, thus preventing a, a larger Joe Biden sweep of the map. I'm thinking especially of, of course, Texas and Florida. For four years, ever since Trump's election, liberal elites had tried to frame rising po populism and national conservatism as rooted in racial resentment and downscale whites' refusal to accept demographic change. The propaganda was relentless and all-pervasive, but minority Trump voters, it seems, have now pierced the ideological veil and revealed the material reality lurking beneath it, that the most important dividing uh, line in our society remains social class. The twists and turns of history and social, social and economic development have paradoxically made the right the champion of the working class, 
while the nominal party of the left is now almost entirely aligned with the establishment. The combined power and ideological unanimity of its organs, their vast wealth, technological prowess, and media influence, means that today's establishment is also a distinct regime, an elite that recognizes itself as such and is determined to preserve its power and forestall any further populist advances, including by deploying ever more sophisticated methods of social and ideological control on the internet. It's the ultimate red pill for conservatives to use a, a too often used um, a term, online term, but I have no better alternative for now, that for Republicans, their movement, whether they like it or not, is an anti-elite, anti-corporate, anti-regime movement. But for many Republican elected officials and conservative intellectuals, this is an embarrassing scenario. For one thing, they're not used to analyzing politics through the lens of class, wedded as they are, to the idea of a classless society and a meritocratic American dream. Talk of class smacks suspiciously of Marxism and quote unquote socialism. More embarrassing still, and this is one of my central theses, that today's starkly unequal America is a product of the policies that Republicans sent much of the post-war era pursuing. Put another way, the GOP uh, consciously empowered the uh, uh, owners of capital and again, that sort of class of people who serve as capital as managers at the expense of workers who toil. It was Republicans who made our modern world of vast inequalities in wealth and power between individuals, firms, and social classes of unaccountable corporate power, of the relentless privatization of public space and public discourse, of the tyranny of private actors now crystallized in big tech censorship, but it goes far beyond it. Over the last two generations, the rights ideologues promoted this vision of America and the West on the belief that encouraging private actors to pursue their selfish ends at every turn and without limits would somehow yield a more virtuous, more healthily competitive, more small C conservative society, thus fulfilling the promise of the nation's Jeffersonian founding. The corporations that aligned themselves with, the, with this vision, the mega donors who underwrote it at think tanks, knew exactly what they were getting. Conditions ripe for private tyranny. Across those same decades, Americans on the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder were robbed of their rights and dignity as workers. Free trade decimated local communities, while social liberalism tore apart the natural family. Big, big, big business got to dictate what we think. Capital went woke. The already yawning gaps between rich and poor widened. And the constitutional promise of liberty so dear to the right shriveled to a mere paper promise. That's a reality when a few unelected, unaccountable uh, Silicon Valley billionaires can, at the push of a button, essentially censor uh, accurate reporting by the nation's oldest daily newspaper continuously published by, and founded by Alexander Hamilton. I can find no greater irony in the fact that Hamilton's paper has now been censored by private actors. This is, to me, the culmination of a foolish con conservative ideology. The left, meanwhile, all but abandoned its historic constituency as it took up increasingly boutique sexual and identitarian causes appealing to a bourgeoisie it didn't recognize as such. Its projects of sexual and familial liberation, quote unquote, went hand in glove with the rights project of economic liberation to squeeze the working class. As the flight of industrial jobs accelerated, downscale workers didn't even have the stable family to fall back on. So it thus falls to my mind as a moral obligation and still a political opportunity, even in this environment, for a new generation of conservatives to reverse course, 
to defend the dignity of work and of tangible toil, to tame the woke furies of Wall Street and Silicon Valley, to fight wealth inequality. Yes, here's a conservative saying, we should fight wealth inequality and to build a more cohesive, more solidaristic and more just society. And I think uh, uh, fundamentally what's lacking in the American way of life, and I'd love to tell you, tell you about this even from a personal perspective and questions, but we have to move on. Uh, our way of life lacks the solidity and grounding needed to make true human happiness possible for most American working families. And I will argue that even the elites are miserable in their own way. It's just not the same level of precariousness where the loss of a job can mean the loss of your health care and utter personal financial ruin. The elite's preferred policy mix promoted by the mainstream left and right for at least two generations erodes the material foundations most people need to one, form and sustain families, two, find dignity and security in work, three, belong to authentic communities and participate in true civic life, and four, fulfill the universal and irrepressible human longing to render worship to God. The answer then is a conservatism to my mind and Yuval will find this familiar, of conservatism of family, work, social cohesion, and faith. A conservatism, in other words, of solidity. And now the, I leave it to the wonks to spell out its precise agenda. But as long as these tensions are not resolved and the working class is not truly represented, then we will only see uh, more of the same kind of ugly scenes and social division that is truly breaking my heart as an immigrant to this country who has no other place to go. So we have to do something different. And it begins with the right because many of the problems we face are of the right's own doing. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Yvonne? All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you, Saurabh. It's, uh, it's, it's great to share a virtual stage with my old friend and uh, to think together. Um, my gratitude too, to Professor Munoz and to ISI and Notre Dame uh, and to all of you for joining. Um, I, I, I won't offer quite as formal a set of comments, but just a few thoughts um, before we get to the Q&A, which I think ought to be the heart of this discussion. There's an enormous amount in what Sarab said that I agree with and uh, in a very straightforward way and that I think is right. But I would say that if we're going to think about the future of the right after Trump, we might want to think a little bit about Trump, too, which wasn't, I think, central to what Saurabh had to say, though, of course, has been central to the work he's been doing and thinking about. Um, I, I think th there is a way, and it relates to this challenge of how do we think now, there's a way that the right in the Trump years did what a political movement often does when it's out of power and not in power. We debated ideology and basic outlooks. People proposed ideas without really trying to enact them. Um, we, we understood ourselves to be planning for the future somehow. There was never a sense that this is the moment to try what we have, to offer it to the public, to see what it can look like, to think in policy terms, and to uh, allow and enable our politics to uh, advance our vision of things. And on the side, there was... Trumpism, which was related to what the right was arguing about and doing, but in a very bizarre and unusual way. And I think that having the kind of debate you normally would have out of power while you're in power has a number of effects. First of all, it's a way of wasting an opportunity, which I think it's fair to say we mostly did. 
Um, it, it also happens in the absence of a source of discipline that comes from being out of power. Um, we, we had these debates without there being a democratic president taking steps that we could all agree uh, were the wrong direction. And so forcing us to think about how to defend our ground, forcing us to think about the dangers of government power, the ways in which power can be threatening and harmful, as well as, as, as the ways in which it can hold potential to do good. And so in an odd way, the right came to be more friendly to, to government power during these years without actually using government power in any particularly effective way. And mostly, maybe above all, it meant that we didn't really think coalitionally um, because we were not forced to think about how to enact ideas. We didn't look at our coalition on the right and think, how do we turn this into 50 plus one so that we can get something through Congress? Or how do we uh, make this work as a practical matter? And I think that that's part of the reason why the tensions between a kind of libertarian economic outlook and conservative social outlook tensions which have always been part of the right, which in some ways have defined the right since the birth of modern conservatism in the 1950s. These tensions tend to be abstract and sharp when we're out of power on the right, and they tend to be moderated some by both the demands and the opportunities of being in power. Um, that didn't happen here, and I think we're left in, in, in approaching the post-Trump era still wondering how a coalition of basically libertarian economic thinking and conservative social thinking is supposed to work. Um, I think we have a negative answer to that question, and, and Saurabh suggested it, and I agree with him, that the way in which that coalition worked in the, uh, let's say, the beginning of this century is not the way in which it ought to work now. That is, the emphasis on conservative economic thinking to the exclusion of conservative social thinking, a kind of libertarian right um, isn't where we are. And I think one of the realities of, of 21st century politics that we have come to terms with only with difficulty on the right is that there is a phase of our politics that was defined by an argument about liberty in which the left and the right each tried to claim the mantle of liberty for itself. That phase, a kind of late Cold War and post-Cold War phase has reached its point of exhaustion, it seems to me. And we are plainly entering a, a new political phase in which the question is not just how do we advance liberty, but also alongside it, how do we advance solidarity? And that's because of the success of the libertarian economic outlook and also the libertarian cultural outlook. I think that half a century of liberalization has meant that we have pushed individualism to the limits and the country now feels as a form of pain, the absence of solidarity in, in, in American social life and calls on its politics to reach again for solidarity. The trouble is that the left and right have both had a lot of trouble thinking about what that looks like as a practical matter and have both inclined, I think, to identitarian answers to that question, to ways of thinking about what solidarity looks like as the organizing principle of politics that are more like answers to the question of who should have power than to the question of how to use power. Um, and I think that latter question is the more appropriate question for a democratic republic. How should we use political power in ways that advance solidarity? Not who should have power as the ultimate political question. The question of who should have power is too often how we talk now on the right and on the left. 
um, which class, which group, uh, who do we define as enemies of unity so we can unify the country against them? Should it be the rich or immigrants? Should it be the, 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 uh, the elites? Um, should it be the left? I don't think either, I don't think any of those is quite the right answer because I don't think we're asking the right question. The right question needs to be directed to how we can use our politics in ways that advance the kinds of goals that Sorab was laying out, which I think are the right goals. A conservative politics should want to conserve the preconditions for a flourishing society, which means a society that enables people to build strong families and communities, to have meaningful, rewarding work, to live their lives and raise their children in accordance with their ideal of the good life, uh, to have the opportunity to pursue prosperity, to have some protection from risk and danger in their lives, to their health, to their safety, uh, to their financial well-being too. And that requires a government that is committed to securing these things and, uh, and is organized around a certain understanding of what politics is for. I think that our peculiar coalition of libertarian economic thinking and conservative social thinking can work this way. There are ways for it to succeed in doing this but that the right way for that to happen is essentially for conservative social thought to define the ends and libertarian economic thought to define some of the means. That is the fact that we are after solidarity and that we think it's time to think in ways that help us understand how a government can advance these ends doesn't mean that we should forget that economic competition is the way to, is the way to achieve prosperity doesn't mean that we should forget the knowledge problem, that is the limits of what government can achieve through planning and centralized control. Certainly doesn't mean that we should forget the importance of individual rights and their protection, which is essential to what our kind of liberal regime is for. The questions that need more attention and in the answering of which social conservatives should be more central are questions about ends, but purposes and goals but to questions about means, we still do need to be a coalition that understands the limits of government and that understands the potential of the free economy. It's possible to sustain that kind of coalition when we think about public policy, when we don't just think abstractly, but when we think concretely about how to govern. And I think there are ways of enabling the kind of coalition we have to function in that way. It's been very difficult to have that debate during the Trump era, because I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the debates we've had in the Trump era have been simply about Trump. And the debate about Trump is not the same as the debate about the future of the right. In, in, a, in a way, you know, the, 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 the debate about Trump involved two sides that each saw the other as weak, as fearful. Trump's opponents thought that his defenders were too fearful of the left and acted out of a kind of hysterical fear of what the left was doing to the country that made it permissible to vote for anybody who wouldn't be the left, including Donald Trump, and, and led people to overlook uh, his low character, which made him ultimately unfit to be president. I think a lot of Trump's defenders looked at his opponents as people who were afraid to get into the fight and who were too focused on a kind of procedural uh, arguments about the rules rather than seeing really what was happening on the ground in American life and what it was that needed to be done. It seems to me that there, there was some truth to both of these. There were certainly ways in which the right had become much too fearful of the left. The left, after all, is also disorganized and weak and unattractive. 
The public's not happy with the left. You could look at the last election and see that. And there are a lot of ways that we can present to the public a much more attractive face in the years to come than what the left is able to do, given the kinds of struggles and internal debates that it's locked in at the moment. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to focus on the needs of the public and on the needs of people who are being disserved by both the left and the right at this moment, which very often means the needs of working families, the needs of people trying to raise kids, trying to hold down a job, trying to build a good life in America. Our rhetoric to the country has to be much more about appealing to those people and offering them what they need to be able to thrive and flourish than about warnings about the dangers of what the left is trying to do. There are elements of the left about whom these warnings are true. There's no question about that. The fear at some level is justified. It's a fear that the left has come to dominate every major institution of American culture and education and media and increasingly also business, as Sorab says, that it's intent on using that power uh, to, to transform American society in ways that make it hostile to religion and morality, to family, to constitutionalism, to liberal education, to basic social order in some respects. The, the concern is that some people who hold different views than that are not going to be allowed to take part in American life. And we're seeing a rising tide of illiberalism that affirms that. But you have to, I, I think it's important for us to understand that the, these are the attitudes of a segment of the left that the public doesn't find attractive either. And that the left has not won these fights at all. We can win these fights, but we can win them not by running around with our hair on fire in hysterical fear of them. We can win them by offering a better alternative, by offering an idea of what politics and government and culture can be that is more attractive, that is more constructive, that is more appealing. And that we can do by thinking about the ends as defined by social conservatives and offering some means that also learn lessons from economic conservatism. We have a lot of history to draw on in doing that. We have a lot of ideas to draw on in doing that. We've got a lot of people working on these challenges in various ways on the right. And it seems to me that the, the, the future, the post-Trump future of the right has to be neither a pro-Trump nor an anti-Trump future, but truly a post-Trump future not a return to where we were before, not an attempt to recapture that phase of our politics uh, in which liberty was everything, but an attempt to build forward into a phase of our politics in which solidarity is taken seriously by the public and to which therefore conservatives have a lot to say and a lot to offer. So I, I'm, I'm mostly interested to hear what people wanna ask about and see where our conversation goes. But I would say as a general matter, I think it is enormously important for us on the right and thinking about the future to think practically and concretely to approach the public, not fearfully, but confidently. And as a political matter, to think coalitionally, to understand that these camps that have been at war with each other do belong together. There is a logic to why they hang together. And in the process of finding ways to learn from each other and build on each other, is exactly how we can come to offer the public something more attractive and more constructive. Gentlemen, thank you uh, both very much. Um, I want uh, to invite everyone to use the raise hand function and uh, I'll moderate that way. There's a lot of folks uh, uh, online right now, so it might take uh, a minute uh, for me to get to all of you. I'm gonna give preference here to students in my class. So um, uh, August will, uh, let you ask the first question and then James, I'll come to you. Uh, so go ahead and unmute, unmute yourself and please ask your question. 
Uh, yeah, thank you so much for the uh, the thoughtful uh, remarks. Uh, I think uh, it really is uh, the future of conservatism, if there will be one. My uh, my question is, what are the biggest wedge issues that you see as standing in the way of creating the coalition that you envision that we saw sort of graspings of with the last couple of elections? And then what policy measures do you think would have to be the biggest priorities in order to solidify that coalition? Sarah, go ahead. Yeah, I, there's so much that I wanna respond to both points, points of agreement and, and disputation with Yuval's, but uh, that's a very good question that August uh, uh, just asked. So I wanna, I don't wanna do him injustice and, and just sidetrack. Um, look, I think the question that will, to, to me, okay, maybe I can weave the two together. The question that to me raises questions about to the extent to which we can um, have a broadly uh, uh, a resuscitation of the old coalition is precisely the one that I use as my symptomatic example of the way in which um, the libertarian, the default kind of conservative view that's um, uh, advanced, again, I think since, since the post-war era, but especially since the, um, since the 1980s, um, and it's a wedge issue that I think prevents a coalition from coming together, um, but what we have to examine is, is big tech censorship. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of what you would call the, the I, pejoratively, you know, we, we did that proposal, dead consensus conservatives, um, non-pejoratively kind of, you know, this, the, the old hangers on to, to fusionism who, who defend, um, uh, who defended the, the censorship of the New York Post, um, where we had, you know, we're not even talking about like Amarius type social conservative goals, just the goal of, um, you know, advancing the truth to the American public ahead of an election about public graft, which now is the subject of federal investigations of, of, of Mr. Hunter Biden. Um, that was, uh, the censorship was defended the, the talking points about Russian disinformation were echoed by folks who tend to be uh, skeptical about uh, populism and are clinging to the sort of libertarian paradigm of liberty above all. I, you know, I obviously, as you, most of you may know, or some of you may know, I, my whole kind of attempt to redefine conservatism is away from you know, goals of autonomy and speech above all. But this was precisely the kind of speech that under the terms of our um, liberal democratic con compact should be protected. Speech having to do with public officials and the relationships to, to uh, you know, foreign potentates um, ahead of an election. Um, and I saw so many defenses at the bottom line once, once we knew that it wasn't Russian disinformation and once we saw that the Biden camp did not, you know, dispute the authenticity of the emails to this day or the, or the provenance of the laptop, but just flung the label Russian disinformation, that told people, smart people knew that that meant that they couldn't deny the story and they still have it, the substance of the story. Um, uh, but it was defended on what grounds? Well, it's a private actor. The, new, the Twitter is a private actor. Facebook is a private actor. So they can do what they want. Um, 
So I think in that you see a very crisp case. There are many others. I could talk about Amazon and labor conditions there. I'm happy to talk about labor conditions with Amazon. But that's a case where the, the dogmatic commitment to sort of a kind of legalism, a kind of formalism undoes the spirit of what those laws and, and, and uh, legal forms were intended to protect. Um, and so, yes, it, you know, there's a meme online that shows a, a person and there's a sort of uh, a military boot on his face and he's sort of licking it and says, it's okay because it's a private actor doing it or it's a business doing it. That's a caricature, but it actually is a position on the on the right now, and it feels ascendant because you know there's some things about the Trump administration toward the end that was a no one denies it was a disaster, but there you know our kind of libertarian-minded friends are reverting to that, and that again it, it's a reduction of of our rights, uh, historic liberties of Americans, many of which are you know incredibly valuable. It's the reason immigrants like me uh, you know come to these shores to this day seek to come to these shores. Um, and they're being undone, but a kind of dogmatism, a kind of uh, commitment to forms as opposed to reality prevents uh, a, a certain kind of conservative of seeing how well, the, the right has become a paper right. It's a paper right. It's, it's there. It's great. You know, I can, I can stand on a street corner with a drum and bang, you know, and say like, Hunter Biden is corrupt. Bang, bang, bang. And people would think I'm a nutter. I, I guess I'm exercising my free speech, but if free speech lives or dies, you know, and is, is more than just the right to sort of extreme pornography, it lives or dies on these platforms where people can speak. And if, it, if a private actor is, is massively uh, uh, blocking our right to have uh, uh, and read news from, uh, you know, public, uh, uh, an old publication that's more than 200 years old, um, there's a problem there. And I just don't think how the, I don't see the, I don't see any kind of reconciliation if, if, if some of our friends don't see that. Yuval, did you want to get in on this? Yeah, let me say a couple of things. I, I think, first of all, that it's worth our seeing that this tension between social conservatives and libertarians is not new. And that it's, it's just not the case that the right for the last half century has been a, a force for libertarian economics dominated by those voices and now needs to change. It, it's been locked in this debate that entire time. And a lot of the time, social conservatives have won those arguments, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, electoral politics, where the candidates Republicans have put up have generally not been the libertarians, but they're social conservative critics. It's, it's hard to see now through the veil of Iraq and other disasters, but that's what George W. Bush was in 2000, a critic of libertarianism from the right who basically said, we need to think more in religious and socially conservative terms than simply letting the market answer every question. In some respects, that's even what Ronald Reagan was and what, and what supply-side economics was. was it, it arose in opposition to a kind of libertarian fiscal conservatism that worried only about the deficit. And Reagan said, look, people need the, 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 the capacity and the space to improve their lives. And that debate uh, had a lot in common with the debates we're having now. That's just to say that I, I, I think it's, it's not quite right that these arguments have gone in a way that mean that the, the right has stood for a kind of pure libertarian economics and, 
as suddenly discovered this need to also focus on family and religion and community and tradition. I think that, I think it is a need. And look, in some ways, in the early 2000s, the right did get to a place where it had lost sight of it. That's what I mean, as Sorb said, that's what a bunch of us were trying to say 10 years ago and 15 years ago and continue to say. And I think it remains important. I don't exactly disagree with Sorb, therefore, but I think that the the, the achievements of the right over the last half century and the emphases of the right have had a lot more to do with these priorities than, than, than that story suggests. Um, I would also say that now, as we think about where we stand, to me, the, the, the wedge issues or the core issues that can be put before the public, but they're also divisive on the right, are less about, um, are less about free speech, maybe in some ways even less about tech, though not entirely unrelated to it, but they are about what it takes for people to be able to raise families and build communities in ways that speak to their ideals and values. Um, I think that it is much more important for us to focus on the, the danger of pornography, for example, than on censorship from Facebook. Uh, and, and, we, and we don't. I mean, nobody's talking about it, essentially, one or two senators, um, which I think is just nuts, given where we've come to in our culture. I think there needs to be a much more assertive kind of social conservatism that takes up some of the challenges of contemporary life. And yes, thinks about technology in ways that are not simply libertarian, that are not simply market oriented, but that are about what kind of culture does this create and what kind of culture is that to live in and raise children in? That raises questions about government support for parents trying to raise families under economic stresses I mean, the, the argument about, about the child tax credit, which, was, which became sort of the obsession for us reformicons, I think is very much about that question, about whether, our, whether public policy should prioritize family formation in an explicit way. And that's a question where we have some allies on the left, where we have some opponents on the right, and where you see this kind of rejiggering, reshuffling of contemporary politics in ways that have everything to do with what our goals should be as a society and not just uh, what our attitudes about government are and the role of government. I also do think that there, there is a desperate need for us to think about the constitution in a way that actually speaks to contemporary problems. We can talk about that more and separately, but for me, that means a, a, a new phase of constitutionalism that is especially focused on Congress in the way that the right has been focused on the courts for the last generation or so, um, and that opens a space that looks like politics, that creates the possibility of actual deliberation and debate, of actual disagreement that's constructive rather than pure abstract polarization. And I think there's a lot of work to be done on that front too. I, all of this is just to say, I, I think I, I share a lot of the goals that Sorab is pointing to, but it seems to me that we've got to think about how these goals can be achieved through our political life as a coalition that appeals to a broad public and tries to broaden its electorate. And oddly enough, the right just hasn't really thought this way in some time, and it shows. All right, thank you very much. We have lots and lots of questions, so I'm gonna encourage uh, uh, both gentlemen to answer thoroughly, but also uh, relatively quickly if you can. Um, let me start with students in my class. Uh, Michael, James, and Sean, we'll go to you. So Michael, go ahead and introduce yourself, unmute you yourself and introduce yourself. Thank you. Uh, I'm, thank you to both of you for being here. I'm Mike, I'm a senior majoring in uh, computer science e economics at Notre Dame. Um, one of the 
things that Yuval had, uh, or Mr. Levin rather, had brought up in his um, opening statement, shall I call it, uh, was this notion of a return to solidarity uh, and something Sohab had uh, continuously been bringing up both online and in the press has been um, this notion that there is this big tech censorship, that there's all of these focuses on these sort of centralized organizations that while privately owned um, serve an enormous role in public discourse. Um, how do we, you know, turn to something along the lines of a subsidiarity where local communities are able to make uh, decisions that affect them? And how do we how do we bring people to a sort of sense of, of, of being able to be aware of, of what is going on immediately around them rather than simply focusing on on national politics and, and how we approach conservatism? Maybe I'll start there. I, I very much appreciate the question, and I think it's the right way to think about solidarity. Um, solidarity and, and subsidiarity, as I, I, it would be odd for me to tell a, a Notre Dame uh, audience about this, but solidarity and subsidiarity are deeply connected, and they're essentially one is impossible without the other. And I think that implicit in that reality is a sense that we build up our affinities, our sense of what we belong to from the bottom up from the interpersonal working out toward more abstract kinds of communities, from family, from religious congregation, from school and community, upward toward a kind of national unity and sense of national purpose. It's why I think that the, the, the turn to the language of nationalism on the right in the last few years, which in a lot of ways has been constructive, has needed to understand itself and to be informed by a sense that ultimately national character and national purpose and, and national affinity are formed by, by local affiliation first. Um, I also think that if we're asking ourselves as a practical matter, how do we solve problems in America? Right now, it would be pretty hard to be optimistic about America if you look at it from the top down. But I think it's much easier to be optimistic about it, or hopeful at least, if we look at it from the bottom up. If we see that first and foremost, there are people trying to improve their situations and to help their neighbors where they are and to build on that and help people think about politics, first of all, as a way of meeting these needs and addressing these problems. I think conservatives have often had that to say to our country and understood our situation that way. Our national politics right now is intensely distracting, right, and understandably so. It's full of these kind of abstract fights that raise big seemingly philosophical questions and that are just terribly interesting because they're very divisive. But I think there's a lot more constructive politics happening at the local level, in some ways even at the state level in some places, where things that seem impossible in Washington just happen because they have to, because there are real problems and practical problems. So uh, it, it seems to me that working toward a sense of a, a national politics rooted in some idea of solidarity has to begin by learning from the local and by thinking about solving problems in ways that take into account what people are doing in their communities. Obviously, that's in itself a kind of abstract answer and easier said than done. But I think as a general matter, that's the place to begin. I'll just go very quickly. Uh, there's so much that I agree with uh, with what you've all said, that, that uh, the local is where I personally find my sanity, right? Like the, I look at Twitter and then I step out, even in COVID times and lockdown, and look, I live in midtown Manhattan, and, and the local is my, my bodega, is the Catholic school teachers uh, my son attends. Uh, and, and it's sane. And those, and those Americans, by and large, don't want, you know, the insanity of Twitter 
politics or what's happening in Washington. They just they just want human flourishing, which uh, to the extent that we still have some intuitions about natural law uh, and objective human happiness, they understand and they, they do their best to live out. Having said that, and this is not a criticism of Yuval because Yuval's understanding of, of subsidiarity is sophisticated, but sometimes in American conservative discourse, subsidiarity has become a kind of just a catch-all uh, redirection to the local, right? Like, well, you know, you got monopolistic problems. Why don't we deal with that locally and we, each community? Well, you can't because it's a, you know, if you're dealing with, with something like Amazon um, and the way that it um, favors certain regions, right? There's a wonderful new book, by the way, recommended to everyone called Fulfillment by a progressive journalist, Alec McGillis, about how Amazon is favoring certain regions and, and disfavoring certain regions and in other ways leveling American regionalism, which was a phenomenon for so long in, in, in American life and now is kind of disappearing because of these forces. Um, but at any rate, uh, uh, that, that's, that is a national problem. And so um, I, I just would caution away from of using subsidiarity as a way to redirect conservatives away from using power, for example, to improve labor rights. I want conservatives to be the ones to say that Amazon workers shouldn't have to relieve themselves in bottles because they don't get enough breaks. It shouldn't be AOC who's the only champion of that. It should be conservatives because Amazon is ideologically opposed to us, let's be honest. But that, not just because of that, but because you know, workers forced to relieve themselves in bottles because, because of the brutal kind of neo-Fordism or I guess uh, Bezosism is this kind of dehumanizing labor that we just get at the price of cheaper, I guess, products is inhumane and is, is unconservative in every way. Um, and so, again, that's I just, again, I, I, I'm breaking the, the vow to keep answers short, but I apologize for that. Okay, thank you. Um, James and Sean, and then I have Micah uh, on, on the queue. James, uh, please yeah, so, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm James. I'm a senior poli sci major, um, and I'm from New York, so I think I live near Usora, but and I read the New York Post almost every day, so I was pretty surprised when the big tech Hunter Biden thing happened. So that just brings me to my question. And you've all touched on this a little bit earlier, which is what role do you think government needs to have in advancing social conservatism and pursuing conservative reforms? Because I know that conservatives are hostile to big government and big power in any private or public domain, but government appears to be the only countervailing power to the tech behemoths and to the other corporate giants who are ideologically opposed to conservatism. So what role do you see government playing in the future of conservatism? Just for, to take that very quickly, um, uh, I think conservatives should not be either individualist or statist by default, right? The, the sage of Notre Dame, Professor Patrick Deneen, my friend, says, points out how those two um, work together in tandem in some ways because the individualism so sort of um, uh, uh, is such a deracinating force in American life and it often requires a, 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 a statist answer. Having said that, um, we look at our problems today and I think a, a, a kind of allergy to using government too 
um, is baked into that dynamic on the right, whereas the left um, for its own social kind of cultural ends is happy to use government and there's a sort of imbalance there. Um, so so not, not a kind of blind statism, but to recognize, as you said, um, James, that uh, there are no countervailing forces but the state in some sense. And when you have um, every other institution, academe, um, media, Hollywood, finance, for the most part arrayed against the right, um, you know, if we can use it prudently, we shouldn't uh, shy away from the state. Again, keeping in mind the subsidi proper subsidiarity, there are some things that can be solved at the local. There are things that can be solved at the state level. Um, uh, but there are things that need national government power. Um, we, we talked about it a lot, I think, over the past four years, and Yuval is exactly right on this, but we didn't actually do much with it. Um, and that's this real tragedy of the, of the Trump era is Yuval is exactly right. Like, what, what do we do with it? Um, I can point to a few things that I'm probably happy about, but it's all very provisional. So I, I, I agree that the, the, the kind of automatic allergy to using government, which uh, became, I think, just a, an easy clutch, a sort of shorthand for a lot of Republican politicians, is misguided. And it is important to think about where it is necessary to use public power. I would say that th there are limits to where it is appropriate to do that, and that we should also be aware both of the limits of what government can do which is, some, which is an area where we can learn from libertarians. I mean, the, 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 the knowledge problem literature is not wrong. Um, there are ways that central planning and large public action can go very wrong in ways that can be extremely dangerous. Um, and it's also important to see that there is a way that centralized government action, national government action, encourages radical individualism. It creates a situation in which everything between the government and the individual gets kind of vacuumed out. And the other side of the coin of central government action is individualism. And what's important for conservatives to sustain much of the time is what's between the two, those layers of institutions from family and community and school and church and even local and regional governments. Um, th those are often where our our ordered freedom, our actual human flourishing happens. And it's very important to sustain those. And sometimes national government is a threat to those. Uh, you know, that, that, that conservative clutch is not simply wrong. It's just that it's not always right. And I think we have to be awake to the possibility that there are certain kinds of problems now that do require national action and that do require us to think at the national level about what politics can achieve. I would also say one thing quickly. There's, there's, it's surely true that the left is overrepresented in a lot of our institutions, in all of our cultural institutions. It's also true that the right is overrepresented in our political institutions. It, it just as a, as, a, as a structural matter, it's simply true that the, the party that represents less uh, densely populated parts of America is generally overrepresented in politics. I think that has meant that the, the left has tried to use its cultural power politically, that is, in those places where it is overrepresented in the culture, now increasingly also in big business, it tries to advance political aims. And the right is increasingly trying to use its political power culturally um, and to do things it can't do in the culture by using public power. I think both of these are pretty dangerous, and it's important for us to think about 
the risks inherent in them both. Um, a lot of what we're talking about, ways of trying to constrain the left, is are really ways of trying to limit the ways in which it uses its cultural power politically in the academy, uh, woke capital. All these things are really ways of using institutional power as though it were political power when it isn't. But we also should worry about the right's tendency to treat all politics as culture, which just isn't quite right. Um, and so in both these ways, I, I, I think there's they're just dis distortions of representation that are probably unavoidable um, and that in any case uh, at this point are out of control in a way that they're not gonna be undone. But in thinking about where our politics goes wrong, I think we should see those and try to constrain them both in our own action and in, and in fighting our political battles. Okay, thank you, you all. Uh, Sean, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, yes, hi. Uh Thank you, Mr. Levin and Mr. Moy, for coming to speak to us. Uh, Mr. Levin, I've been a big fan of yours for a while. Uh, I'm Sean Tehan. I'm a junior here at Notre Dame studying political science with minors in con studies and theology. Um, my question, well, I originally had James' question, so I'm going to get my back one. Um, I was wondering, it seems like the biggest issue, maybe not in the next four years, because Biden hasn't focused on this so much, uh, but in the future, the biggest question is going to be healthcare um, and um Progressives clearly have a solution. Uh, uh, just take Medicare for all, uh, take Medicare and add for all to the end of it. And so it doesn't seem like conservatives have been coalescing around any one idea except repeal Obamacare. So I was wondering if y'all have any solutions to that. Um, uh, can I speak from personal experience on this? It's, it's one of the things that gets me fired up. So um, uh, look, I think if I were to, and I mentioned this in my opening talk, if I were to pin down one thing that is the overarching problem in American life from which flow a lot of other pathologies and, and uh, the cultural type issues that you know, are legitimate in their own domain, but also have some material roots, it's this quality of precariousness. Again, I, I mentioned it in the, the opening. And one of the ways in which Americans um, of a, a very broad swath of Americans, and I'll get to the personal aspect myself, feel that quality of precariousness most acutely is uh, in the dimension of healthcare. Uh, so I'll give you an example. So I have, I have two children um, and well, I'll tell you a personal story on this and I apologize for the time meetup, but I, when I started working as, a, you know, out of law school, I, I joined the Wall Street Journal. I had um, you know, the kind of platinum plated plan, but I was a single childless male. And so I, I was used to American healthcare as it exists for people in that class. And so you go to these really nice doctors in Manhattan and only pay like $5 and, oh man, it's so great. And then I went, I, the journal moved me to London and I became, although they, they buy you uh, private health insurance, it's only for surgeries and special things. For the most part, as a, as a journal employee in London, you have to rely on the National Health Service. And at first I would go to these clinics and sort of feel like, oh man, I miss my doctor in Manhattan, like the sleek office and so forth. And complained about it on Twitter. The fact that I didn't, I felt like I didn't have options. Um, things changed then, you know, but I was just married and I, have, I had children and, you know, kids get sick when you first have kids or, or you're a new parent and you don't know what you're doing. And so the, the first sign of like the temperature's up, you're like, oh my God, the kid's dying. Let's race to the hospital or to the doctor. 
Um, we didn't overuse that. I mean, I think we were, I'm not trying to suggest we were hysterical, but we were reasonable about it. But nevertheless, I came to see in the National Health Service such an immense sense of security. And then we moved back to the United States. Um, and I'm still, you know, broadly coming to work for the same company. And we, uh, uh, our son got sick with what's called the human metanuma virus. I don't know if you've heard of it, um, but it's a common childhood illness. It's not that big of a deal, but it requires a night's monitoring in the hospital because, uh, you know, it could be, it could get serious. So you want to monitor their breathing. Did we do it? We go home. We have insurance. All right, no problem. And we get the bill for it. Um, it's Wild Cornell. And it's $22,000 for that one night, of which we were responsible, even with our insurance, for like three, four thousand. 4000 I can't remember, $3,750. Now, for me, I, I write an extra essay in commentary. I give an extra talk, and we cover that. But I, I'll constantly try to imagine what that's like for working in middle-class families, you know, which who have, you know, kind of far inferior because my wife and I both work for large companies, um, health insurance wise. So that gives you a, a basis of security. But if you don't have that, you know, how do you, how do you deal with like just like $4,000 bill? If you, you know, if you make 50 K a year, 40 K a year. Um, and, and it's just, I, I, I realize all the kind of, administrative issues that are that exist in American healthcare, the pricing issues, which have some market solutions. Um, it, you know, you do you do an x-ray, if it's a scheduled x-ray, it's only $150. But this was an emergency x-ray. So it's a 1000. But it's the same people doing the same thing. But one costs like absurdly higher, and you can't you can't challenge it. I mean, the insurance company tries to negotiate it down. But the bottom line is that I've come to conclude that that this is no way to live, that it's inhuman, that people should have some security in their healthcare, that a, that a, that a routine childhood illness should not cost $4,000. That's absurd. It's immoral. It's inhumane. And conservatives better have a solution more than the kind of cliched solutions that we've heard. And one of the great failings of the Trump presidency was that it would offer a replacement for Obamacare. It never did. It just did that, mounted that moronic court challenge um, or joined it. Um, and again, as I don't know, I don't want to spell out a solution per se, but some basic care that you don't face $4,000 bills. Again, it's easy for people in my, it, it's easy but stressful for people in my socioeconomic class. I cannot imagine what it's like for working to middle-class people and how unjust that is. And you sometimes pose it in conservative fora and people will respond on Twitter. Conservatives will say, well, they'll just pay it over time, you know, hospital workout. Well, why should it cost that? And why, why can't American society somehow, the wealthiest society in the world that spends the most per capita on healthcare, um, have a humane solution to this? So that's my very personal answer. But whatever we have just is a, a source of profound precariousness. And I dare any kind of conservative libertarian conservatives in good conscience to say we have a fair system. Well, I'll be quick. I, I, I agree with that. I, I think we have the worst sides of both a free market and a government run health system in America without the better sides of either one. Um, and I, you know, generally speaking, there are not a lot of people who are happy with the status quo when it comes to healthcare. The question is, what do you do about it? How do you address the underlying inefficiencies that create these pricing problems and that create these access problems? And in answering that question, the left and the right go their different ways in ways that I think get us back to the question of whether it's possible for us to define ends in socially conservative ways 
but define some means in more market-oriented ways. And I think it is possible when it comes to healthcare, where the question of how to restrain costs and provide better access is a question that can be answered by providing people with options and subsidizing their access to those options, rather than by centralizing the system and eliminating options in order to subsidize everyone access, everyone's access to the same thing. The difference between these is a, is a significant difference. It's about ultimately whether we solve large knowledge problems at the center or in a dispersed and decentralized way. Um, now, the, the, the challenge that those of us who try to think about healthcare on the right have always had is that the politicians on the right don't want to think about healthcare and don't know anything about healthcare. Um, and so it is, you, 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 when you have a debate about healthcare between uh, elected officials on the left and right, what you walk away with is the left has an answer. It seems kind of lumbering and maybe it wouldn't work, but it's an answer. It starts from the fact that people have a problem and it tries to deal with their problem and the right denies the problem. And I would say to you that this is a pattern that you see across the range of domestic policy issues, where at least at first, the inclination on the right is to deny the existence of problems, whether those are uh, whether those have to do with welfare or healthcare or education or uh, or or the environment or many other things, um, rather than say there's a problem, but there are, there are better ways to solve it. The inclination is to say there's not a problem. And, and that the notion that there is, is only an argument for the left's way of solving it. So all this is to say in brief, you can take a look at some of the ideas on the right. For example, uh, if you look at, at healthcarechoices2020.org, you'd find a proposal that's a kind of, at this point, a consensus right of center healthcare proposal. Um, I'm not an objective observer of it. I'm one of the people who created that idea, but um, it, it, it gives you a sense of what things look like when you begin from the premise that the problem is real. Just the, the, the problem that Sorb describes, which is a profound insecurity resulting from the utter insanity of the way that health financing works in the United States is a real problem. And then you ask yourself, how do you solve that problem using the strengths of our economy? Um, I, I, I think it's a better way than what you would find uh, than, than, than the status quo or than, or than Medicare for all. Um, which I think doubles down on the worst part of our health system. But I do agree with you that as an observer standing on the side, if you just watch these debates, you'd have to say, well, the right just doesn't have an answer. I don't think that's quite true, but it's too close to true uh, for comfort. Thank you very much. Um, okay, two more questions from uh, members of the class. Uh, Micah and then Joey. Micah, will you introduce yourself and unmute yourself? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm Micah Jones. I'm a poli sci major. I'm a senior from the northern suburbs of Chicago. Um, and I had qu uh, two quick questions, um, a little bit of what James talked about. So um, when you talk about big tech, um, a lot of conservative pundits use, usually say that, you know, big tech, big tech, you know, is usually on the left and it's usually for the left. Um, and the left, you know, touts it and, and uses it. But my question is, what what would conservatives say that they would do about big tech because a lot of leftists like AOC, like Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren have come up with ideas of how to get, not get rid of big tech, but more so regulated and not, and not have what we see today. Um, a lot of big tech, you know, using their um, terms of service to kind of not allow for people to say things that they need to say. Um, and then also on the other side of that, um, I wanted to ask you about Donald Trump and, and, and he's making a Patriot Party and, and our 
the what they're saying is he's going to make a Patriot Party. And what do you feel about that? And that being like basically the death of the Republican Party, you know, splitting the two, the GOP and, you know, the Trumpist Republicans. Like, how do you feel about that and what he's doing with that? All right, I'll, I'll go first on the big tech thing and maybe let you all address, address the Trump thing. Um, uh, uh, no, we should probably address both. But um, uh, uh, look, uh, the big tech thing, I, um, boy, uh, I, I so find myself in, in uh, strange agreement um, with, uh, with figures on the left uh, increasingly. Um, not the entire left, but what, what you would call the kind of materialist left, the, 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 um, um, maybe the non-liberal left, you know, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald. Um, uh, and uh, the, uh, first, let me address it as someone who works for a publication that is subject to libel laws. If I um, publish libel about you, I come forbid in the New York Post, you can sue the New York Post. We, in, in the 1990s, um, or in 1996, Congress enacted a, a law that allows platform type uh, institutions before Facebook or Twitter were either a thing to, in a good Samaritan way, to censor and therefore act like publishers, uh, prurient content, child pornography, violent threats, and so forth. And they, they, they were given this exception, exemption where they could, um, in effect, act like publishers, but nevertheless shirk a publisher's liabilities. Um, so therefore, we're like this un, unequal footing. That was fine until big tech began to use what was carved out for a kind of Good Samaritan purpose to stifle um, a, a fundamental American right, who David Harsani of, the, of National Review um, you know, who is not a kind of post-liberal conservative. He even, you know, first to say he's a classical liberal, but even he said, look, Section 230 is not more fundamental than the Constitution. Um, and so one vengeful <laughs> impulse on my part is, look, if, I, if, if we at the New York Post are, are, uh, act like publishers and are face up publishers' libraries, why should they have a special carve-out if they're going to have a worldview? If you go to the discover or notification um, tab under, fate, under Twitter, you increasingly see them curating their own stories even, right? Um, and it always, like, I can show you so many examples that it just tilts um, to one side of the political divide. So as just a matter of fairness, there has to be, you call it reform, you call it repeal, but some shaking up of, of things that um, so far, um, uh, uh, Republicans have huffed and puffed about, and when they had power, they didn't really do anything about it, other than more more of that huffing and puffing. Um, and this is partly, I have to say, there's a sort of genuine corrupt dimension to this, which is a lot of conservative institutions are funded by big tech. Um, I won't name names, but they know who they are. Um, uh, and, and surprise, they they don't want to touch Section Two Thirty. Um, but also there's a monopolistic aspect to this, right? Uh, remember that the, the libertarian answer to the problem of big tech censorship was always, well, go make your own platform. Parler did that. Parler emerged as an alternative platform. And then uh, it was removed from the Google App Store and from the Google App Store. And then Amazon booted it from its um, uh, hosting service. This, even though Facebook was more 
a lot of the activity of organizing the January 6th uh, uh, putsch or whatever took place on Facebook. So face, uh, 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 but you know, Facebook did not get removed from those app stores. Um, so that's, that is monopolistic behavior. And we actually have existing laws to target monopolies as well. Um, and um, if, a, if a progressive administration does it, go for it, go for it. Because that, those are laws that were put in place precisely for situations like this. Um, so I would do both of those things. And whichever side of the political divide does this, because I find this, this problem to be so ominous and so sinister, I don't care, I will cheer it. And um, I will not line up in partisan fashion to denounce it if, 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 if a, I don't know, Senator Sanders proposed it or whatever. Yvonne, could you take the question on uh, Trump? Uh, sure. Let, let me say one word on this, which is that I, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of us who were worried about this feel like we're not only agreeing with the left, but speaking like 19-teens progressives. Um, big tech presents a kind of challenge that is like what the American political system had to deal with when industrialization came at the end of the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century. That is, it forces us to come up with a new vocabulary to describe a form of power that our political system is not yet well equipped to, to, to deal with. And the question is really, what is this power? How do you think about it? What, in what categories does it fit? Is it speech? Is it economic? Is, what is this? I think that's the work we have to do. And I, I'd be remiss as a think tanker if I didn't tell you that the think tank where I work, the American Enterprise Institute, has been working on that question over the past year. And we have a series of papers you can look at that tries to think through that question. What is this power? I'm going to just put it in the, in the, in the chat. Um, and, and leave it at that. But on this other question, it's actually kind of related, right? For the same reason that Parler can't ultimately beat uh, Twitter, I, I don't think that a new Trump party could really make much of a dent in the Republican Party. And I actually don't think that Donald Trump ultimately would do that. Um, look, Trump is self-destructive. He's a narcissist. He thinks only of himself. But when he thinks about how to use the power he's got, everything that might be at his disposal could only really be available through the Republican Party as a way of exercising power in the primary process. You create a new party and he isolates himself. Uh, you know, fine, great, but I don't see it happening. And I don't. And if it did, I don't think it would be a tremendous threat to the Republican Party, just given the structure of our system. But I think the, the, the challenge of Trump for Republicans is going to be bigger than that over the coming years. It's going to be a challenge within the party and a challenge that they'll have to overcome for the sake of the future of the party. Okay, we're going to go to Joey, and then we'll go uh, to uh, members uh, not in the class. And I have Rachel Liu and Mike Desch uh, up on the queue. So, uh, Joey, uh, please introduce yourself. Hi, thank you both so much for being here. Uh, I'm Joey. I'm a senior political science and economics major here at Notre Dame. And then my question is on the coronavirus response. Um, a lot of moderates who have been kind of leaning towards the Republican Party as of late uh, aren't happy with the government's response with the coronavirus. And I'm wondering how you think the conservative movement can kind of take that back, and especially the libertarian part of that movement who are very against government in those forms. You know, I think it's a complicated question because the, however libertarian you are, dealing with a massive threat like this surely is at some level a, a job for government. It's one of the reasons we have a government. And there's, there's really no notion of modern politics that doesn't think of that as one of the government's aims. Um, 
And look, I, I think ultimately when we step back from all this and look at it with a little bit of perspective in a year or two or three, the response of our government and of governments in general around the world um, is going to look better to us than it does now. This is a massive challenge, a, a, an entirely new kind of uh, pandemic threat that didn't exist a year ago, just about, and has disabled the world in the course of the, of, of the year. Um, mobilizing to address that kind of challenge is extremely difficult. And it's not only a terrible chief executive, though we did have a terrible chief executive who would have a lot of trouble dealing with it. Everybody's had a lot of trouble dealing with it. And I think ultimately, when you look back on this and see that the United States did mobilize and enable the creation of vaccines in, 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 at record pace, is actually providing those vaccines at record pace. We've already immunized 24 million Americans. Um, it's, it's January 26th. I think we might've started maybe on December 25th. Um, the, the fact is the level of mobilization here is pretty extraordinary. And I would just tell you, having, having worked in government, having seen something like this, but not on this scale from the inside, it's always ugly. It's always minute to minute looked at in real time. It always looks like a complete mess and a failure. But I think in retrospect, we're, we're going to find a lot of ways in which the mobilization that happened here was actually pretty extraordinary, alongside lessons that we'll have to apply to fix the workings of our government's response to public health challenges. There are going to be a lot of those. There are a lot of things we did wrong. But I don't think we simply walk away and saying, well, we screwed that up completely. Uh, the story is never quite that simple. Um, uh, I think conservatives um, have to try to address in a smart way, smarter way than just yelling hypocrisy to the, the um, very alarming and ultimately dangerous behavior of some or many in the public health establishment. Um, or, you know, as Jake Siegel noted, you know, public gatherings, remember, were barred until the summer riots happened. And, the, and some of them were legitimate protests, some of them were riots. But then suddenly, uh, we were told by more than a thousand public health officials and epidemiologists that participating in those is a matter of uh, actually civic duty. Um, and, and there were so many instances of this because I, obviously I covered the kind of the New York aspect, but like if you were Orthodox, uh, uh, you know, Jewish uh, congregation and you wanted to mourn the uh, death of a revered rabbi, you know, uh, the, the NYPD cracked down against them so hard. And then, you know, you had politicians uh, partying after the uh, 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 outcome of the election became clear, uh, you know, sh passing bottles of champagne in mass gatherings. Um, this kind of thing will not help the public health establishment. We, there is going to be a next pandemic and the public health establishment needs to, to act responsibly and have the same, cannot become wokeified, ideologized in this way. Because I tell you, a lot of Americans just think it's all a bunch of, it was done to take down Trump. They locked things down to make the economy bad. Um, and by the way, if you had the right cause, then you could break the social distancing protocols. Um, it, I don't know how you begin to, to repair that, um, uh, but it, you know, it, something very sinister in that. You know, that, that loss of trust and expertise as a result of the politicization of expert classes is one of the big stories in contemporary American life. And I think it is going to be something we live with for a long time in the wake of the past uh, year and several years. 
Okay, uh, Rachel Liu. Rachel, will you unmute yourself and introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks so much. Um, I'm Rachel Liu. I am not an undergraduate, <laughs> but, but I am an alum, class of 02, go Irish. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask a question about um, this idea of the Republicans becoming a multiracial working class party. I know a lot of Catholic intellectuals who are very excited about this idea. So I've been reading, partly for that reason, I've been reading more kind of historically about labor movements, especially American labor movements. And here's kind of my thought, my concern. I think I see a lot that's really admirable in American labor movements. And, and uh, so I'm reading about, you know, Samuel Gompers and George Meany and some of these great labor leaders. There's a really a lot to admire about those people. And the idea that some of that energy might be brought into the Republican coalition sounds really exciting to me. Um, but I also have a concern, which is, it seems to me that the ethos of labor movements tends to be very, I guess you could say, communal or grassroots, if you wanted to put kind of a positive spin on it, they, they're all about taking care of their own. That tends to be kind of the ethos of those movements. If you wanted to put a perhaps less positive spin, you could say they tend to be a little insular, provincial. Put it like this, labor movements, their forte is not really common good thinking. Their forte is thinking about the needs of the particular people that they represent. So you can see where I'm going with this. The concern that I have here is, although I can see how it could be very positive for a working class movement to become a significant component of a right-wing coalition, it seems to me if that becomes the primary identity of the Republican party, it's going to be very difficult for us to engage in real common good thinking. And it's going to be very difficult for us to, I guess you would say to shake a, nativist or revanchist or insular sort of um, mood that's that, that makes it really kind of impossible to address a lot of the questions that need to be addressed in an increasingly interconnected world. So I guess the question just, is that a reasonable fear? Is there some response or way we can cope with that that I haven't appreciated yet? Or, or what would you, should we think about that? So um, I think that's why, to my mind, and this is because obviously I only had about 15 minutes to sketch it out. Um, ultimately, this conservative politics has to be ordered to the common good. Um, and that means that there are instances in which the way labor unions behave, uh, particularly public labor unions, is contrary to the common good. We're seeing that now with, uh, with public schooling, right? Um, it, it, uh, you know, the teachers on the one hand are declaring that they're... Um, you know, essential, on the other hand, um, not working um, or working very little and refusing to come back even as vaccination um, gets rolled out uh, and there's talk of pushing back reopening of schools in some places into 2022. Um, so that's that's a clear case where, you know, yeah, the, the labor movement um, uh, uh, can act contrary to the common good. And so um, a that requires, I think, a politics that's holistic where we, it, it, we aim for the common good and we recognize that the good is knowable, including common good, um, uh, and not leave it everywhere up to the competition of various social forces, including labor unions. But on the whole right now, where I see 
at the same time, you know, politics has to be ordered to justice as well. And where I see a lot of injustice is this kind of corporate worker imbalance. Um, and I think there are opportunities for the right to ally with labor unions um, to address that. Um, and there's a, a real opportunity for conservatives to be a party of workers, as long as I think we take your caution in mind that the, you know, the pursuit of the common good is the ultimate ground and horizon of this, not, you know, a workers' party for a worker party, workers' party's sake. Yeah, I would almost say, I, I, I think, first of all, it's easy to, to, to exaggerate the degree to which the Republican Party is becoming a multi-ethnic anything in this moment. The Republican coalition is less multi-ethnic than it was in 2000, um, when it elected George W. Bush, much less than it was in 2004. Um, th this election saw a more multi-ethnic Republican electorate than the last one, and that's the right direction, but I don't think we should overstate that. The same in some ways can be said about its working class foundations. It is more of a working class party than it was when Mitt Romney was the nominee, but less so than when George H.W. Bush was the nominee and back in 1988. So I, I, I think, you know, we, we've, got to, we've got to think historically and realistically about how the party is evolving. And secondly, I would say I, I very much share the concern you raise, and I think that the way to take it on has to be to somehow think coalitionally about politics, that you have to broaden your appeal and speak to voters who are not already in your coalition, while at the same time looking for ways to address the concerns of those who are, and that inevitably means reaching for some kind of language of common good, because you're trying to build a coalition among people who have different interests. That's no easy thing. And I don't, you know, the, 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 to, to do that as a party that's focused on the interests of working class Americans, which I think are very important to focus on, is inherently a challenge. And you see that in Republican politics now, as you saw it in Democratic politics for many, many years, because a lot of what vo working class voters want involves a kind of exclusion, uh, an exclusion of others. Sometimes that's about immigration. Sometimes that's about economic concerns. And a, a political party, in order to be successful in our democracy, has to find ways to address those elements of what its various coalition members want that, are, that, 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 that can work together and cooperate, and to put aside those that make it impossible to build a broad coalition. Both our parties now are very bad at coalition building, broadening their electorate. We have two minority parties. We have not had a majority party in American politics for 30 years. And the, the character of our politics, what we call polarization, is actually just the fact that we have these two minority parties, and they only ever win by making the public even more sick of the other party than of them. That's basically the only way now to run a winning election, uh, election contest. And so the parties are out of practice in trying to broaden their tent and broaden their appeal. I think Republicans are in a pretty good place to do that. Uh, Trump has made it harder, much harder. But in the post-Trump era, I think that needs to be a focus of Republican politics. They're building from not so bad a place if they're willing to reach out to voters who are not already inclined to be Republicans, which, to put it frankly, they're not very good at doing at the moment. Okay. Uh, gentlemen, I just want to make sure we're supposed to end in just a few minutes. Can we go a little bit beyond time? Sure. Okay. And I know some of the students probably have class at two, and if you have to uh, exit, please, of course, you're welcome to do so. Um, we just have so many questions, and I want to get as many as we can. Uh, Professor Desch, my colleague in political science at Notre Dame. Uh, Mike Desch? 
Yeah, thanks, Philip. Um, I, I want to pick up on uh, Mr. Levin's uh, comment about thinking coalitionally. Um, and <clears throat> I thought your, you know, discussion of the polarity of the right being, you know, freedom versus solidarity, uh, you know, was quite instructive. And obviously, you know, fusionism has been the solution that a lot of people have, have come to there. Um, but Beyond the right, in terms of connecting uh, the right with the median voter, I'm not sure um, that that polarity is going to be one that a creative solution can necessarily come out uh, of <clears throat> or from. So, you know, the obvious question is, uh, what, what's a broader, you know, uh, polarity that encompasses more than just the conservative side, but you know, certainly connects it to other people. Uh, I was thinking, you know, shooting from the hip that maybe something along the lines of virtue versus self-fulfillment, you know, might be the, the broader uh, defining polarity to try to reconcile. But I'd be curious as to what you think and um, if there's time maybe for to hear uh, Saurabh on that. Because uh, the future of conservatism, I think, has got to be a reconnection with the broader public rather than, you know, just uh, making the old coalition workable. Thanks. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Let me start with a, a general point, which is that I think the left and the right, as they've been now for a very long time, I mean, a couple of centuries, in a sense, the, the, the right begins to think about problems by thinking in terms of order and disorder or of, of, civilization and, and chaos. Um, Arnold Kling, the, the economist, suggests this in a wonderful book called The Three Languages of Politics. And the left addresses problems by thinking in terms of oppressor and oppressed. Who has power? Who's being abused by that powerful person? Um, that basic polarity, that, that, those two different ways of thinking about political questions I think cut very, very deep into the left and right. And, and in all the different sort of forms of evolution of left and right over the many years now, it still more or less remains the case that the right tends to approach problems by thinking about social order and chaos and the left by thinking about oppressor and oppressed. Uh, ask yourself why they're on such different pages on immigration. I think the answer is in that difference. Uh, why they think so differently about policing. I think the answer is there take the, the, the controversial issues of any moment, and it looks like that. And so th the challenge for each of them is to make its approach most attractive to the public by broadening its meaning in such a way that it speaks to people's problems and concerns. So that conservatives now would have to speak to the public about the ways in which we are lacking the necessary order for people to build thriving lives and the need to, to provide security and stability and order and structure to, for people to build families and communities and to have meaningful work. Conservatives can know how to do that. I think our politics now is, is too taken up by, the politics of the right is too taken up by fear of the left to offer a particularly attractive way of, of framing that message, but it can be done. And there are ways to use government to enable people to, to feel safer, to have more of the resources they need to raise children and build families and communities. The left is going to be more inclined to talk to the public about who's abusing their power and who's the victim of that. And I think that that's a harder case to make to the American public, generally speaking. It's further from people's sense of what American life is actually about. But 
it, it can speak to a to an idea of justice and an idea of uh, of of people's rights that is very powerful in in American life. And I think in this moment, the left is doing a better job of translating its priorities into that language of justice and rights. And the right needs to think about how to translate its priorities into the language in which people perceive their own problems. That's always a challenge, a kind of translation challenge in politics. And I, I think at the moment, that's where the right out of focus. I hope that's an answer to your question. I'd like to take a crack at that wise question as well. And um, I heard a lot in what you've all said that um, I would also ditto. So I'll pass over those, but only to say that um, I don't think the language of oppressed and oppressor should be the exclusive preserve of the left. I mean, to the extent that um, conservatism in this country is still um, has roots in in uh, biblical religion, for example, uh, the the Hebrew Bible is full of. I was reading Job recently, and, and it's full of kind of talk of the the, the uh, afflicted turning to God because of what the what the oppressor, what the powerful mm, do, or what they withhold from the widow, from the weak, from the poor. Um, and so the 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 question is, to me, for the right, how do you pierce behind what I think is the mainstream left's ideological attempt to hide the real tensions um, and the real sources of oppression in our society, um, to hide them beneath a regime that talks about justice even as it works out very well for the powerful today. So, for example, if you look at um, a lot of what's come out over the past year from, um, uh, from the left, ultimately what it ends up doing is it doesn't change the material condition of working class people. It doesn't even aim to do that. It doesn't, it do it doesn't aim at um, you know, redistributive justice in a meaningful way. All it ends up doing is empowering the HR department to fire people for more reasons for for you know speech acts or the or the failure of working class people to to mouth the correct the latest uh, kind of terminology and patois of the managerial class and which is ever shifting so you're always kind of on on unstable ground but even if you master it awkwardly now tomorrow there'll be a new addition to the identitarian uh, 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 kind of acronym having to do with sex and uh, gender. And so you're going to fall behind. And that's another reason for the company to fire you. So what we have is a situation in which um, uh, it, it's pure, it's ideology as someone like Slavoj Žižek would understand it. it um, uh, 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 language, language games and um, uh, uh, kind of performative structures that hide a material reality of, of oppression. Um, uh, and so for me, I think the right is at a place to pierce through that um, and has to play this role of, of critique in the way that um, I think the smartest leftist writers, I mentioned Taibi, I mentioned Green, Greenwald um, guys at, at the Bellows. I don't know who reads that uh, website here, but um, they're doing that. They notice how uh, the kind of woke ideology, whatever kind of orthodoxy it is that we live in is perfectly good for for kind of an oligarchic class it's perfectly it works perfectly fine for them and it ensures that um 
you know, material injustices get somehow transmogrified into, um, uh, <laughs> you know, new mechanisms for the HR to actually uh, uh, fire workers. Um, that's how I see it. And I think you could really, you could build a genuine coalition out of that in the way that I think Professor Desh is talking about, but it's uh, what I just outlined is a lot more oppositional and it has sharp edges and I don't deny that. Okay, uh, I'm gonna go to uh, D'Artagnan Edmonds. D'Artagnan, if you can uh, introduce yourself and, and I apologize to Bianca and Justin and Isaac, this will have to be our last question. Uh, D'Artagnan, please. My name is D'Artagnan Edmonds, and uh, I'm a Master's of Theological Studies student at Notre Dame. I have a question primarily for um, uh, Mr. Levin. Um, over the years, you've written a lot about reform, conservatism, um, you, Ross Douthat, and some others. And so I guess I'm curious, one, as to the prospects of success that you see for reform conservatism in a post-Trump era. Um, and also, I would like to ask this, to what extent do you see reform conservatism as using um, libertarian means, as you were talking about earlier? Because it, it really strikes me that reform conservatism is, in certain respects, non-libertarian. But, um, but I guess I'm wondering what you would say about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for the question. I, I, um, I, I am, I think it's fair to say, an unreconstructed reform conservative. Um, I, I think that basically the, the, the core purpose of what we were trying to do, in, and this is really the very end of the Bush era and throughout the Obama years, um, the fundamental purpose was to try to redirect the Republican Party from thinking of the public it was addressing as a bunch of swaggering business owners to thinking of that public as mothers and fathers and workers and citizens. And that, that means understanding the public. And, and I think it is a little different from what Sorab was just describing, not so much as people who feel themselves to be oppressed, but from people whose aim, whose goal is to build a flourishing life and who confront real obstacles on the way there. Some of those are put there by public policy. Some of, their, some of those are functions of markets. Some of them are functions of just modern life and its complexity and insecurities. And that there are ways that politics can be useful to people in those situations, to help them feel more secure about taking risks and to help them feel more confident that they are able to pursue the good in their lives as they understand it. Um, that's certainly connected to the kind of populist politics that we've seen on the right in the last few years, but it's also different. Um, I think that it, it is more traditionally constitutionalist. Um, it, it does in some ways aim at libertarian, uh, using libertarian means, you know, this language of using libertarian means for non-libertarian ends, at least as I know, it comes from Peter Lawler, um, the, the, the late Peter Lawler, one of, the, one of the best observers of modern America that I'm aware of. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot to that description, provided we understand that ends are primary, that is politics is defined by the ends, not by the means. And that means that the goal of enabling people to form flourishing families and find meaningful work and build thriving communities are where politics has to begin and what it's got to be focused on. But the question of how should learn from a lot of the lessons that modern economics can teach us so that a lot of the ways that we would propose to solve problems have to do with allowing people to have more options, 
letting people who don't have the resources to enter markets as consumers have those resources. And ultimately, consumer markets are pretty good at solving problems. The, the challenge they face is that a lot of people just don't have the money to be functionally to be consumers in healthcare or in education or in other arenas. And one way in which government can help them is to provide them with some of those resources and let them be consumers so that those markets form themselves around their needs and priorities. So in that sense, we did argue and do argue for using some libertarian means to non-libertarian ends. But because the ends are primary, so reform conservatism is an aspect, an element of social conservatism. It is first and foremost rooted in I think it's fair to say, I don't want to speak for others, but I, I, I know them all pretty well. I think it's fair to say that it is fundamentally a kind of religious conservatism, um, a sense that that's where our priorities and our goals come from, um, and a social conservatism that's also informed by the lessons that half a century of coalition building with libertarians can teach us. Um, those lessons only go so far. And I think the basic insight that what we require is a coalition of that sort that can appeal to winnable voters, build out the appeal of the right by speaking to people's aspirations as much as their fears, I still think that's basically right. And as a recipe for a post-Trump uh, Republican Party, it's still more or less where we are. We've got to learn lessons from the Trump era. So I'm not simply where I was in 2009 or 10, but I think that as a general matter, the, the logic that we were advancing there is at least still what I would think. So that uh, I'm either still wrong or still right. Saurabh, so I'm gonna give you uh, the last word here, but uh, let me mention before I turn it over to um, Saurabh that uh, uh, all uh, you can read more about his thinking on these matters in his recent book, A Time to Build, uh, a terrific um, study of the role of institutions, how they're declining and their importance for American democracy. Um, uh, Sora, maybe you could uh, uh, say just a, a brief word about your forthcoming book. We can close here. Um, Mr. Amari has a book, uh, The Unbroken Thread, uh, Discovering the Wisdom uh, of Tradition in the Age of Chaos. I've been reading it myself. It will come out this May. Uh, give us a little foretaste of, of your forthcoming book. Sure, I'll be quick because I know everyone wants to, to, to run, so I won't hold people up. But uh, basically, it's a book written out of my concern as a, as a father of uh, the son I mentioned who got the human pneumovirus. He's, he's fine now, but um, I'm genuinely worried about the kind of man that our contemporary civilization will chisel out of him. And I'm trying to link him back to the, to the tradition that his name represents. He's named after Maximilian Kolbe, you know, the great uh, Auschwitz saint. Um, who laid down his life for a complete stranger. Um, and in order to do that, um, I posed 12 questions that each uh, puncture or probe one of our kind of contemporary liberal technocratic certainties. And each is explored through the life of one great thinker. So is God reasonable Aquinas? Um, can facts justify your life? C.S. Lewis. Is sex a private matter? Andrea Dorkin, perhaps surprisingly. Um, you know, uh, uh, what do we owe our bodies? Hans Jonas. What's good about death? Seneca. And so it's a work of popularization for the most part, uh, but written with a great deal of fatherly love because the questions at stake are very personal to me and involve the flourishing of uh, one of the people I care the most about uh, in my life. And hopefully some of that will come through as a book for readers as well. And so I thank um, Professor Munoz for mentioning it. OK, 
And tell us when it will be available. It'll be available in May. It's out from Random House, uh, but you can pre-order it from Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, all the usual places, as well as their penguinrandomhouse.com, the publisher's site. Okay. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much. A terrific conversation. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. I uh, want to thank our co-sponsors, uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. And please come back and join us uh, again uh, a week from uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, uh, February uh, 3rd, for our uh, panel on the second Trump impeachment. Uh, Sarab Amari, Yuval Levin, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you.